Audio Description Introduction, 3 Minutes Welcome to the James A. Garfield National Historic Site Visitor Center's audio tour. There are a total of 45 minutes of recorded audio segments available describing the Visitor Center's exhibits and features. First, we will provide an orientation to the audio description device. Second, we will describe the function of each of the controls. And third, you will learn how to operate this simple device. Hold the device with the neck cord on the left, short side of the device and the operating controls on the right side. Place the cord around your neck or wrist to ensure that it does not slip from your hands. Hold the device at chest height. The flat screen on the left side of the device is used at some sites for captioning. On the right side, you will find a row of tactile buttons. There are two triangular buttons at the top of the row. Beneath these are four crescent-shaped buttons in a circle surrounding a round button. Then there is a square button and finally a diamond-shaped button. The triangular buttons control volume. At some locations in this exhibit, the crescent buttons are used to move up and down through menu selections. The north, or 12 o'clock crescent, moves up the audio menu. So does the west, or 9 o'clock crescent. The south, or 6 o'clock crescent, moves down audio menu selections, as does the east, or 3 o'clock crescent. The circular button in the center is used to select and hear the description of the last menu item read. The square button is the pause and resume play button. The diamond button will replay these audio instructions at any time. You may operate the device with your left or right hand. These instructions are for right-handed use. The sensors that receive signals within the visitor center are located on both long sides of the device. This enables the device to be turned with the buttons under the left thumb for left-handed users. The device will automatically receive signals from either side. Do not block the edge of the device that is facing up. Descriptions or audio menu prompts will play automatically when you move into range of an exhibit or point of interest. To operate the device, merely move through the visitor center holding this device in front of you. Where menu choices are available, the menus will be read automatically. Using the Crescent Menu Selection keys, move up and down the menu until you hear the desired audio program. Then press the Circular Start key to hear that audio segment. When the segment ends, you will be returned to the menu where you may select another topic. Remember, the diamond-shaped button may be used to repeat these instructions for this device at any time. Enjoy your visit! Visitor Center Introduction, 3 Minutes The Visitor Center consists of a bookstore, information desk, exhibits, and theater. At the entrance of the Visitor Center is the bookstore that contains shelves and kiosks with books, postcards, stickers, t-shirts, mugs, dolls, magnets, DVDs, and other items. To the far right of the bookstore is a desk where tickets are sold to the house tours. Across from the desk is the horseshoe-shaped hall that houses the exhibits of the Visitor Center. On the side wall, to the right of the desk, hangs the chronological outline of the history of the events surrounding the National Park Service and James A. Garfield National Historic Site from 1876 to 2016. Key elements of this chronology include Garfield's purchase of the property in 1876, the Front Porch Campaign in 1880, and the designation of becoming a National Historic Site in 1980. Continuing past this wall is the door to the theater where a film about James Garfield's life in Ohio, his education, Civil War duty, rise to the House of Representatives, election to the presidency, assassination and death is shown upon request. The carriage house has the original dark wood walls dented with gashes and original rolling doors that are part of the previous horse stalls. They are wood on the bottom with small round black iron poles from the middle to the top. At several corners, there are original thick wooden rough-hewn posts. These square posts stand on gray fieldstones. All of the original elements of the building may be touched. Many of the exhibits are in plexiglass cases in a variety of sizes, 9 inches tall by 16 inches wide, to large, 9 feet tall by 7 and 1 half feet wide. Some of the backgrounds are black and white photographs or drawings of events related to the subject of the exhibit. 
Four of the exhibits are scenes with life-sized, white-colored sculpted figures with the facial characteristics of James Garfield and the people in his life dressed in the clothes of the day. These scenes include the inauguration, Road to Wisdom, the Dark Horse Candidate, and the assassination. As visitors pass by the scenes, a recorded dialogue will play. You may choose to pause the audio description at that point to hear the dialogue and come back to the description when it is finished. If you would like to pause and then resume playing any audio description segment, press the square button. You may also press the square button after a segment has ended to hear that same segment again. Across from the information desk is the entrance to the exhibit hall, where two rough-hewn posts sit on gray field stones on opposite sides of the opening. Three sections of red, white, and blue bunting hang from the top of the beams. On the left is an exhibit of the inauguration of James A. Garfield as president, which will be described when you are closer to the exhibit. For the audio description selections here near the information desk, you may now press the crescent buttons to choose and the circular button to listen. The entryway, one minute. The James A. Garfield Visitor Center is located in the 1893 Carriage House of the James A. Garfield National Historic Site. The Visitor Center is a greenish-gray clapboard building with a peaked roof. Outside, above the set of double glass doors through which you entered, is a blue and gray Visitor Center sign with gold lettering. Now inside, on the right, the walls are wooden clapboard of beige with a green-framed window with multiple panes. This is part of the original building and can be touched. Facing us is a black and white, larger-than-life cutout photo of James Garfield on a brown background of leaves. He wears a soft black hat and has a long oval face with a salt-and-pepper beard and mustache under a long, straight nose. His eyes are under heavy lids and he stares to the right with a furrowed brow. The bottom of this display reads James A. Garfield Visitor Center. On the left, a glass door leads into the main area of the visitor center. The entryway, one minute. The James A. Garfield Visitor Center is located in the 1893 Carriage House of the James A. Garfield National Historic Site. The visitor center is a greenish-gray clapboard building with a peaked roof. Above the set of double glass doors in the middle of the outside wall is a blue and gray visitor center sign with gold lettering. Through these double doors is the entryway to the visitor center. On the right-hand side, the walls are wooden clapboard of beige with a green-framed window and multiple panes. This is part of the original building and can be touched. Facing us is a black-and-white, larger-than-life cutout photo of James Garfield on a brown background of leaves. He wears a soft black hat and has a long oval face with a salt-and-pepper beard and mustache under a long, straight nose. His eyes are under heavy lids, and he stares to the right with a furrowed brow. The bottom of this display reads James A. Garfield Visitor Center. On the left, a glass door leads into the main area of the Visitor Center. Listen to the description of Garfield's inauguration as president, the exhibit on the left. The inauguration of James A. Garfield as president. A sculpted figure of James A. Garfield, six feet two inches tall, with a large build, an oval face, narrowing hooded eyes, a long straight nose, full mustache and beard, stands with his left hand on a Bible. He faces a man who holds the Bible with his left hand and has his right hand raised. James Garfield wears a black frock coat and pants, white shirt, and black bow tie. The man facing him wears a black robe and has a beard. They stand beside a white column and in front of an American flag. Listen to the description of Garfield's world, the early years, the exhibit on the right. Garfield's world, the early years, two and one-half minutes. This exhibit is on the right side of the entry to the exhibit hall and across from the inauguration scene. On a sage green exhibit board. Garfield's world, the early years. James Abram Garfield, 1831-81, to 81, was the last president born in a log cabin. His parents were among the many New England pioneers who settled the Western Reserve in the early 1800s, 
clearing the dense forest for farms and digging canals to connect the Ohio River with Lake Erie. Garfield's father, Abram, a farmer and canal contractor, died in 1833, leaving his widow Eliza to raise four children. Below is a plexiglass case with the following items. A rough oval wooden bowl, a black pocket knife inscribed J. Garfield, 1838, and a heavy round black cast iron kettle purchased by Abram Garfield in 1819. Next to the cast iron kettle is a brown sepia tone photograph of a woman in a striped dress with a cape and a white bonnet. Eliza Blue Garfield. Garfield's mother remarried, unhappily, when James was 11, but left her husband after a year and returned to the farm. James was humiliated by the divorce. To the left of the plexiglass display case is a sage-colored panel entitled Big Sea Dreams. In the middle of the panel is the first picture taken of James Garfield. It is a close-up of him as he's a teenager, with dark, thick hair sticking out on the sides and top of his head, a long nose and broad mouth. He stares out expressionless. He wears a white shirt and a loosely tied black bow tie, a dark vest, and a dark coat. The youngest of four children, James grew up big and strong like his father who died when James was a baby. Dreamy and clumsy, James loved to read, especially books about the sea. At 16, he left home to be a sailor, but could only find work as tow boy on a canal boat. Falling into the water frequently and nearly drowning, he contracted malaria and had to return home to his mother after just six weeks. Continuing into the exhibit hall, on the right is an original wall of beige clapboard with a green-framed French pane window that can be touched. Past this on the right is the exhibit, The Road to Wisdom, and on the left, a long wooden wall with gouges and hoof marks that can be touched. Listen to the description of The Road to Wisdom exhibit on the right. The Road to Wisdom exhibit, five minutes. This exhibit is contained in a plexiglass display case, nine feet high by seven and one-half feet wide by two feet deep. It sits on a sky-blue platform and has a beige background inside with items on beige boxes. On the far left in the case is an exhibit board on a sage-green background. When James was home with the ague, his mother persuaded him to enroll at Geauga Seminary in Chester. Paying his way with odd jobs, farming, and teaching in one-room district schools, he thrived on his studies and became a skilled debater. Baptized in 1850 as a disciple of Christ, Garfield entered the Western Reserve Eclectic Institute, a disciple academy in Hiram, Ohio, and earned respect preaching. In the middle of the exhibit board, in large letters, is The Road to Wisdom. As his intellectual horizons expanded, Garfield also explored current ideas on spiritualism, hypnotism, and phrenology, character analysis based on skull shape. Below the exhibit board is a brown leather book on phrenology, open to a page with small numbers in rows and columns. To the right is the black and white engagement picture taken in 1858 of Garfield with dark wavy hair wearing a dark coat, white shirt, and dark tie, and his fiancée, Lucretia Rudolph in a dark dress with a lace collar. Her dark hair is parted in the middle and pulled back into a soft bun. They both stare forward. A long engagement. Creech showed great patience during their long engagement. She is good and true and noble, far better than I am, wrote Garfield. But he kept her waiting. Garfield's courtship of Lucretia Crete Rudolph, an eclectic classmate, was plagued by doubts and misgivings. Fearing the living grave of marriage, he put their engagement on hold for four years, finally marrying Crete in 1858. To the right is a blurry black-and-white photo of a group of the Western Reserve Eclectic Institute faculty in 1852. Return to Hiram In 1856, Garfield returned to the Eclectic as professor of ancient languages. He set a grueling pace, teaching, preaching, and also speaking for Republican Party candidates. Promoted to president of the Eclectic in 1857, he helped it grow into a regional college, introducing teacher training, American history, and other innovations. Above this is a black-and-white photo of the Eclectic faculty in 1859, four men and three women. The men are in dark coats and pants, white shirts, and black ties, 
and the women wear long, dark dresses with lace collars. On the top right side of the exhibit is an exhibit board in sage green that shows a black and white photo of Garfield with his arm around his cousin, Henry Boynton. A scholar among scholars. At the eclectic Hiram College today, Garfield enjoyed the disciple atmosphere and high academic standards. But by 1854, after a year on the faculty, he had outgrown Hiram and left that summer to attend Williams College. Garfield chose Williams College in Williamstown, Massachusetts, deciding, for the sake of liberating my mind, to spend some time in the atmosphere of New England. In his two years at Williams, Garfield made his mark as an orator. His massive figure, corresponding manner, and magnificent bursts of fiery eloquence impressed his peers. Below are these items, a black mortar board with a tassel, a brown pottery inkwell belonging to the Garfield family, a black leather Bible, and 11 leather hardbound books with Garfield's inscriptions or book plates, including Gray's Manual on Botany, Political Economist, Evidence of Christianity, Homer's Iliad, and Vestiges of Creation. Above the books is an exhibit board of sage green. On the right is a drawing of Garfield in 1856 with a full, untrimmed beard and mustache, wearing a dark frock coat, white shirt, and dark bow tie. Into the public eye. Garfield seemed fated for a political career. When the Republican frontrunner for Ohio State Senate died in 1859, Garfield was nominated with almost no effort on his part and easily won the election on an anti-slavery platform. As state senator, he studied law and was admitted to the bar, but he had never felt so sadly and almost despairingly over his future. Within months, the Civil War intervened. While his career bloomed, home life withered despite the birth of Eliza, Trot, in 1860. Telling Crete their marriage was a great mistake, he went to Columbus alone. To the left is the entry into the Hall of Exhibits. In the far right corner is the road to wisdom seen. Listen to the description of the Road to Wisdom scene in the far right corner of the main hall. The Road to Wisdom scene, one and three quarters minutes. Two sculpted figures sit on a log in back of a two-foot-high rock wall. On the left is James Garfield as a young man, dressed in a brown frock coat, beige shirt, black ribbon tie, and beige pants with a black book in his lap. He sits sideways facing the second man, Mark Hopkins. Hopkins is dressed in a black jacket with a white shirt and tie and beige linen pants. He faces forward, holding his left knee up with his hands. Behind them is a forest glen with trees and green leaves. The blue sky above them has a pink and gold glow. On the right-hand side, in front of the wall, is a placard on a blue stand that is attached to the rock wall. As a young man, James A. Garfield might have enjoyed conversations such as these with Mark Hopkins, president of Williams College in the Berkshires of Massachusetts. Garfield reportedly said that the ideal college is Mark Hopkins on one end of a log and a student on the other. Below this statement is a vertical row of subjects with five square red buttons. When you press one of the buttons, voices discuss that subject and each sculpted man is illuminated as he speaks. When one of the subjects begins to play, it must play to the end before you may choose another one. Choose from these subjects. First, at the top, slavery. Second, woman suffrage. Third, creationism versus evolution. Fourth, theology. Fifth, at the bottom, education. Across the exhibit hall and to the left is the war exhibit. Listen to the description of the war exhibit on the left. War, three and one quarter minutes. In a plexiglass display case is a black and white background photo, six feet by seven feet, of the 96th Pennsylvania Infantry at Camp Northumberland. Men at attention holding rifles and a man sitting on a dark horse. The war between the states. War transformed neighbors into mortal enemies. Ohio versus Virginia, Kentucky versus Tennessee. Garfield transformed himself almost overnight into a military man. When war erupted, Ohio Senator Garfield abandoned pacifism for a military career. As colonel of the 42nd Ohio Volunteer Infantry, he had to recruit, 
train, and equip a regiment of green boys, many from Hiram. Victory over rebel forces in Big Sandy Valley, Kentucky, earned Garfield promotion to brigadier general. He took command of a new brigade in time to join the end of the bloody Battle of Shiloh. As the war dragged on, he wrote, Before God, I here record my conviction that the spirit of slavery is the soul of the rebellion and the incarnate devil which must be cast out before we can trust in any peace as lasting and secure. Letter to J.H. Rhodes, May 1, 1862. At the bottom right-hand corner of this exhibit board is a picture of Garfield sitting with four of his staff in camp. They wear dark military uniforms and have untrimmed beards. To the right of this exhibit board is a lightly outlined map of the area of the Chickamauga Campaign in September 1863. Garfield served with General Rosecrans at the Battle of Chickamauga, where the Federal Army stalled and was almost surrounded. When Chickamauga looked like a rout, Rosecrans left the field in despair. Garfield, persevering, rode through enemy fire and into legend. To the right of the map is a black-and-white photo of a regiment of soldiers in dark coats marching in front of a white house. The 42nd Ohio Volunteer Infantry, 1863. In Kentucky, Garfield's 42nd Ohio faced deadlier foes than the rebels. Exposure, hunger, and disease. He was tortured by guilt when Hiram boys died in an epidemic. Garfield commanded the 42nd Ohio before the Battle of Chickamauga. From left to right, objects in the display case include items that were used by Garfield during the Civil War. A dark wooden traveling trunk, two feet high by two feet wide by two feet long. Two heavy leather saddle pistol holsters sit on top of the trunk, and there are scuffed brown leather boots beside it. Next to the boots, three brass spurs, one of them in the form of an eagle's head. Above the spurs is a beige canvas reproduction pith helmet. The beige box above the helmet contains four rows of shiny brass military buttons and blue epaulets. Attached to the top of the box is a Colt revolver with a wooden handle. Next to the box hangs a dark blue wool cape and a black wool felt military hat. To the right of the war case is the Between the Battles exhibit. Listen to the description of the Between the Battles exhibit on the left next to the war exhibit. Between the Battles, two and one-half minutes. A plexiglass case, two and one-half feet wide by five feet tall by two feet deep, contains an exhibit board with the Union artillery at the Battle of Shiloh, April 1862. Between the Battles After Shiloh, Garfield went home to recover from camp fever and was elected effortlessly to Congress in 1863. Awaiting military orders in Washington, D.C., he befriended Treasury Secretary Salmon P. Chase and acquired a passion for finance. He was finally assigned to General Rosecrans' staff. Garfield longed to return to the battlefield after Chickamauga, but at Lincoln's request, he left the Army and took his seat in Congress. It is indeed a baptism into a new life which our souls have received. Reconciling with Crete during his convalescence, he finally found lasting joy in his marriage. Letter to Lucretia Garfield, September 27, 1862. On the exhibit board is a black-and-white photo of Garfield. His black hair is receding, he has a full beard and mustache, and wears a dark military coat with two rows of brass buttons down the front. To the right is a large black-and-white photo of the encampment of the Army of the Potomac. Four white men sit on a hillside overlooking a field of men, horses, white tents, and smoke stretching far into the distance. Below this is a photo of the ruins of Charleston. Burnt-out buildings and the chimneys of houses run the length of a street in front of a darkened pillar where four black children huddle together. Below the exhibit board is a black-and-white photo of Sudley's Church and Ford at Bull Run, a square building on a hill overlooking a stream. To the left is a colored portrait of Eliza Arabella Garfield, a young child with light brown hair, brown eyes, and rosy cheeks and lips. Little Trot Three-year-old Eliza, Trot, died of diphtheria in 1863, a few months after Chickamauga. Garfield suffered terrible desolation of the heart. To the left are two militia staff officer swords. The one on the left is in a brass-trimmed leather sheath 
with a rounded handguard, and the one on the right is brass with a knight's head on the top and a mother-of-pearl handle with a straight hilt. On the opposite side of the hall are the next two exhibits. On the right is Life in Washington, D.C., and on the left, the recipe for a radical Republican. Listen to the description of the Life in Washington, D.C. exhibit on the right. Life in Washington, D.C., two and three quarters minutes. This exhibit, in a plexiglass case, six feet long by seven feet wide by two feet deep, has a sky blue background and beige display boxes. In the middle is a brown exhibit board titled Life in Washington, D.C. Early in Garfield's congressional career, Crete calculated that in five years of marriage, they had lived together only 20 weeks. From then on, Garfield's family went with him to Washington, D.C., living at first in rented rooms. The Garfields tended to be homebodies, not socialites. Crete dedicated herself to raising a large family. Five children survived, and Garfield became a devoted family man. Garfield's wearying workload took its toll on his health and spirits. He once told Crete at the end of a long day, I would be glad to die and get out of it. To the left of the exhibit board is a large black-and-white photograph of the Garfield family children, ranging in age from 8 to 16. The three young boys wear dark suits with lace collars and short pants. A tall, dark-haired young man wears a black suit, and a young woman has brown curls pulled back and wears a dark dress with a long skirt. Of the Garfield's seven children born between 1861 and 1874, five lived to adulthood. Harry, James, Mary, known as Molly, Irvin, and Abram. Their first and last-born children, Eliza, Trot, and Edward, Nettie, died very young. A typical day in Congress left Garfield exhausted. After 10 years on Capitol Hill, he still had only a part-time secretary to help him with the piles of paperwork. From left to right in the display case are these objects used by the Garfield family from their home in Washington, D.C. They include Lucretia Garfield's straw bonnet with white satin ribbon on the top and sides, Lucretia Garfield's golden oak writing case with slots for envelopes, notepaper, and ink, Garfield's 18 leather-bound books, which have his book plates, inscriptions, and notations inside. They include Virgil, Goethe, Shelley, Horace, and Charles Sumner. Lucretia Garfield's Jasperware green tea set with raised white figures from her set of green wedgewood. Hand-painted dessert plate and serving plate with peaches and red flowers. Brown ceramic pitcher with shiny brown Rockingham glaze. It has a hound handle shaped as a hound dog. Directly to the left is the recipe for a radical Republican exhibit. Listen to the description of the recipe for a radical Republican exhibit on the right, next to the Life in Washington exhibit. Recipe for a radical Republican. Four and one quarter minutes. Stretching half the length of the back wall of the hall, Eight and one-half feet by six feet is a black-and-white photo of the light-colored marble steps of the Capitol. On the bottom half of these steps are hundreds of men in dark suits, including James Garfield. Re-elected in 1874, a bad year for Republicans, Garfield joined the party leadership ranks, but lost a chance to be Speaker as Democrats won control of the House. The picture is the House of Representatives' 43rd Congress. Garfield is standing front row, third from the left. In front of this photo are four plexiglass outlines of the portions of the Capitol building with information about his career in Congress. In the back is a taller yellow plexiglass cutout with a domed roof, one foot nine inches wide by five feet five inches tall. Ex parte Milligan. In 1866, Garfield became the first attorney to argue the first case of his career before the Supreme Court. Ex parte Milligan, the most notorious case of the 1860s, challenged the jurisdiction of military courts in civilian cases. When the court ruled in favor of Garfield's unpopular client, infuriated congressmen threatened to impeach the justices. On the left is an orange plexiglass cutout with a peaked roof on the left-hand side. Government reform. Garfield fought for civil service reform to get rid of the worst abuses of the patronage system. 
he modernized the census, proclaiming, This is the age of statistics. He favored federal regulation of state commerce, though he remained moderate on trade tariffs. On the right is a pink plexiglass cutout with the peaked roof on the right-hand side. Committee work. Landing an impressive appointment to the Committee on Military Affairs during wartime gave Garfield's career an early boost. He pushed unpopular measures for the draft and against allowing men to buy their way out. Like Lincoln, he saw a bigger army as the fastest route to peace. As chairman of the Appropriations Committee, he reduced government spending. As head of banking and currency, he fought inflation. Between the orange and pink displays and to the front is a purple plexiglass cutout with a centered peaked roof. It is two feet wide by three feet high. The Education Congressman. Still a scholar at heart, Garfield devoted time to educational causes. He drafted the bill creating the Department of Education and served on the Board of Trustees of Hampton Institute, a historic African-American college. Below the plexiglass display is the last picture of Abraham Lincoln in brown sepia tones. He has wavy dark hair over his haggard face with bags under his eyes and furrowed brow. After the Civil War, President Lincoln's cautious politics lost support from radical Republicans like Garfield. He thought Lincoln a second-rate Illinois lawyer, but was sick at heart when the president was assassinated. Next to this photo is a brown exhibit placard on a slanted blue box. Recipe for a Radical Republican The Civil War shaped Garfield's early years in Congress. Although it went against the grain of his feeling to favor Negro suffrage, he stood for abolition, equal rights, and retribution for war criminals. Garfield backed hard money, blaming irredeemable paper money for opening hell on our people. His rousing speeches were a hit with the press and public, if not always with other congressmen. I am trying to be a radical and not be a fool, which, if I am to judge by the exhibitions around me, is a matter of no small difficulty. A critic dismissed him as a big, good-natured man that doesn't appear to be oppressed with genius. A January 1, 1867 letter from James G. Blaine to Burke Hinsdale. To the left of this exhibit is the Dark Horse Candidate exhibit. Listen to the description of the Dark Horse Candidate exhibit on the right side. The Dark Horse Candidate, three and one-half minutes. In front of a corner wall with a black-and-white drawing of a convention stadium filled with people stand three sculpted men. They are dressed in beige knickers, brown boots with canvas shin-high spats, blue and red coats, short red capes, and carry guns with an attachment of small tin torches. The first of three exhibit panels. The Dark Horse Candidate In 1880, Garfield's career suddenly skyrocketed. He was elected to the Senate in January. In June, he attended the Republican National Convention in Chicago to nominate John Sherman of Ohio for president. After 33 ballots, none of the favorites, Sherman, Ulysses S. Grant, or James Blaine, could break the deadlock. Abruptly, the vote shifted. On the 36th ballot, a stunned Garfield received the nomination. I want it plainly understood that I have not sought this nomination and have protested against the use of my name. Nonetheless, a nomination coming unsought and unexpected like this will be the crowning gratification of my life. Above this is a small plexiglass case with a plate bearing Garfield's picture a hat with Garfield and Arthur's name on the band, and one of the square tin oil-burning torches. Above this, a placard. Front porch stump. Campaigning was considered undignified for presidential candidates. Garfield and his Democratic opponent, General Hancock, were expected to let stump speakers campaign for them. As the Republicans' best speaker, Garfield hated sitting on the sidelines. Using his latest technology, the telegraph and the railroad, he linked Lawnfield to the outside world and brought the campaign to his own front porch. President Hayes' advice, to sit cross-legged and look wise, left Garfield frustrated. If I could take the stump and bear a fighting share in the campaign, I should feel happier. Diary, September 26, 1880. To the left, the third placard. A tough campaign. With few issues at stake, the campaign got personal. 
Old scandals were revived and new ones invented. Democrats used the slogan 329 as a reminder of the Credit Mobilier affair. Worse, a letter allegedly signed by Garfield suggested that he favored cheap labor. Although he proved the Mori letter to be a forgery, it hurt his showing in the West, where Chinese immigration had become an explosive issue. Below a plexiglass display case with political handbills, campaign buttons, a Garfield and Arthur club pamphlet, and a white campaign handkerchief with portraits of Garfield and Arthur. Campaign 1880. Voters turned political campaigns into rousing entertainment, complete with torchlight parades, rallies, uniforms, badges, banners, and other colorful propaganda. To the right, a display placard. Roscoe Conkling, looking over the great presidential puzzle, men's heads in a box. Stalwarts versus Blaine. The Republican Party had splintered. Grant's men, stalwarts, led by Roscoe Conkling, battled Blaine supporters and both lost. To appease powerful New York stalwarts, the nomination for vice president went to Chester A. Arthur. To the left, on the wooden wall, is the It's a Proud Day inauguration exhibit. Listen to the description of It's a Proud Day, the inauguration exhibit, to the left of the Dark Horse Candidate exhibit. It's a Proud Day inauguration, one and three quarters minutes. Attached to the wooden back wall is a brown exhibit placard. Even before he was elected, Garfield became entangled in patronage wars and cabinet appointments that consumed his time before the inauguration on March 4, 1881. He finished writing his inaugural address at 2.30 that morning. The day dawned blustery, but brightened as the ceremony began. Garfield, tired and pale, delivered a curiously bland speech. His first act as president was to kiss his aged mother. I close the day with sad conviction that I am bidding goodbye to the freedom of private life and to a long series of happy years which I fear terminate with 1880. Diary, December 31, 1880. Election Day, November 2, 1880, was sunny across the nation, and voter turnout was high. Garfield voted in Mentor and followed returns by telegraph at Lawnfield. Waiting for the verdict, Garfield won by only a narrow margin in the popular vote. His electoral college victory was decisive, 214 electoral votes to Hancock's 155. To the left, a black and white ink drawing at the reviewing stand. Troops march under one of the 33 iron arches spanning Pennsylvania Avenue and above President Garfield reviewing the inaugural parade, March 4, 1881. A vast throng packed the Capitol grounds and lined the parade route. Next to it is a small plexiglass case with a rolled copy of the inaugural address. Across the hallway and to the left is the 200 Days of the Presidency exhibit. Listen to the description of the 200 Days of the Presidency exhibit on the left. 200 Days of the Presidency. Four minutes. In the front middle is a gold exhibit board. A 19th century president was more approachable and yet had more privacy than one today. He had no secret service and far fewer perks. The president's job was grueling. Thousands of political appointments had to be made, and a steady stream of greedy office seekers flooded the White House daily. Garfield felt drained by the incessant demands of the political patronage system. The contest between personal interests is very hateful to me, he confessed. It will cost me some struggle to keep from despising the office seeker. Diary, March 14th and 16th, 1881. Above this placard is a large brown sepia-toned photo of James Garfield looking to the right. He wears a dark top hat and suit. Over his left shoulder is a black and white photo of the Garfield family in 1881. To the right is a black and white photo of First Lady Lucretia Garfield in a dark satin dress with a white ruffled collar and dark hair in ringlets around her face. First Lady Lucretia, Crete, rose up to every new emergency with a fine tact and faultless taste, the President noted proudly. As First Lady, she balanced family and new social duties. Crete fell gravely ill with malaria in May. Intense anxiety made Garfield fit for nothing in the weeks until her recovery seemed secure. To her right, above and below her, 
are four plexiglass cutouts in pink, gold, orange, and purple. Achievements of a Brief Presidency Peacetime presidents were not expected to achieve much in office, but President Garfield managed to make his influence felt in a number of areas. He took particular pride in successfully refunding the national debt through the public sale of government bonds. Garfield defeats Roscoe Conkling. From the moment of his nomination as Republican presidential candidate, Garfield battled Senator Roscoe Conkling of New York and other party bosses over political appointments. Conkling, bent on controlling the Senate and New York State, opposed Garfield's choice for collector of the Port of New York. When the president stood fast, the Senate confirmed his candidate, and Conkling went down to resounding defeat. Reforms and Scandals Garfield's contemporaries credited him with laying the foundation for civil service reform. Inheriting a corrupt system based on political patronage, he was appalled by the number of offices the president must fill. To clean up the worst abuses of the spoils system, Garfield launched an investigation of the post office scandals and initiated a study of the merit system. Foreign and Domestic Policy Garfield insisted that the solution to the problems confronting Southern blacks lay in education. On the foreign front, he urged stronger ties with neighbors and friends in Latin America. In front of the display are three plexiglass cases of objects belonging to Garfield and his family during his time in the White House. Some of these include silver flatware set in a presentation case, white silk handkerchief, tan kidskin gloves with lace banding, a series of small photographs of Garfield family members, onyx gold and diamond cameo brooch, bracelets made of twisted strands of garnet-colored glass beads, Garfield's brown leather boots, a black top hat, Garfield's white satin bow tie, a blue velvet bonnet with an ostrich feather trim, white kid leather shoes with satin bows and beaded embroidery. Across the hall is the assassination exhibit. Listen to the description of the assassination exhibit on the right. The assassination, two and one half minutes. On the far right, on a red display box. Assassination, July 2nd, 1881. Garfield set out from the White House to join his wife convalescing at the ocean before heading home to mentor. He was strolling through the Baltimore and Potomac train station in Washington, D.C. with Secretary of State Blaine when tragedy struck. Emerging from the shadows, Charles Guiteau fired two shots point-blank at the president's back. My God, what is this? Garfield cried and crumpled to the floor. On the bottom right-hand corner is a black-and-white drawing of a man raising a gun as Garfield clasps his back and collapses. Charles Guiteau, shooting President Garfield at the Baltimore and Potomac Railroad Depot. Above this display board, spanning the distance of the wall, are a series of black-and-white pen-and-ink drawings. At left, a man hangs the most recent official bulletin about Garfield's condition on the wall. Previous broadside poster bulletins are placed above it. The nation reacts. Every detail of the president's shaky condition made front-page news. I should think the people would be tired of having me dished up to them in this way, he said. To the left of this is a black-and-white drawing of Garfield propped up on pillows in bed. A group of men surrounds him. At the sickbed, the doctors probed the wound repeatedly in their efforts to locate the elusive bullet. Alexander Graham Bell tried out his new metal detector, but found only bed springs below. To the right above this picture is a black-and-white drawing of a man riding a black horse out of the gates of the White House amongst a crowd of people. The Tragedy at Washington Anxious citizens mobbed the White House for news of the president. One bullet had merely grazed an arm, but the other hit deep. Garfield and the nation went into shock. Below in a plexiglass case is the black top hat worn by Garfield on the morning of July 2, 1881, and returned to the White House after his assassination. Above this, to the left, is the handbill bulletin announcing the death of President Garfield, September 19, 1881. Directly across the hallway is the assassination scene exhibit. Listen to the description of the assassination scene across the hallway from the assassination exhibit. The assassination scene, one and one quarter minutes. 
In the middle of the scene is a sculpted figure of a pale, thin Garfield lying propped up on a narrow wooden bed, his eyes closed. Facing him is Crete, in a white linen dress sitting in a straight wooden chair. In front of the display is a glass wall with a white opaque etching of seagulls flying over a beach with sea oats and seagrass swaying. Over the next few months, Garfield lost more than 65 pounds and suffered constant pain. An endless procession of doctors tried one treatment after another. Their incessant attentions resulted in blood poisoning, leading the assassin Guiteau to declare, The doctors killed Garfield. I simply shot at him. On September 6, a specially modified train transported Garfield gently to Franklin Cottage on the Jersey Shore. I have always felt the ocean was my friend, he once wrote, and the sight of it brings rest and peace. But the reprieve was only temporary. At 10.35 p.m. on September 19th, Garfield finally died. Across the hall is the entrance to an adjacent room that houses the obsequies exhibit that covers the funeral and memorials. At this location, you may choose between audio description of Garfield's inauguration or Garfield's early years. Press the crescent buttons to choose and the circular button to listen. At this location, you may choose between audio description of the Road to Wisdom exhibit or the Road to Wisdom scene. Press the crescent buttons to choose and the circular button to listen. At this location, you may choose between audio description of the War exhibit, the Between the Battles exhibit, the Life in Washington, D.C. exhibit, or the Recipe for a Radical Republican exhibit. Press the crescent-shaped buttons to choose and the circular button to listen. At this location, you may choose between audio description of the Dark Horse Candidate exhibit or the Inauguration exhibit. Press the crescent buttons to choose and the circular button to listen. At this location, you may choose between audio description of the 200 Days of the Presidency exhibit, the Assassination exhibit, or the Assassination scene. Press the crescent buttons to choose and the circular button to listen. The Obsequies, A World in Mourning, four and three quarters minutes. This exhibit is located in a room with an original uneven red brick floor, a high ceiling with exposed beams and small lights, and walls of bare wood planks. On the left-hand side, stretching the length of the room, are two black and white photos. On the left, the mausoleum, a domed brick building, and on the right, two brick arches festooned with bunting and flowers. In the middle of the room is a rectangular exhibit case five feet wide by nine feet long by three feet tall. At the far end, on top of the case, a red display board. A World in Mourning, Obsequies. The train that carried Garfield to the sea returned to Washington draped in black. Over 70,000 mourners filed by the coffin at the Capitol Rotunda. The funeral train rolled onto Cleveland past silent trackside crowds. Tributes poured in from around the world. Perhaps the most tangible show of public sympathy came in the form of donations totaling over $350,000 to a fund for Garfield's widow. In the display case under the exhibit board is the casting of Garfield's bronze death mask and hand by Auguste St. Gaudin. To the left is a silver plaque in an ebony frame from the New York Mining Stock Exchange and an album presented by the Maritime Association of the Port of New York. On top of the case is an exhibit board with a pen and ink drawing of a train going past a group of people dressed in suits and long dresses standing along train tracks. The Funeral Train At every town and railroad crossing, the people were standing, all with very mournful faces. People had come from miles around with all of their children. Molly Garfield's Diary Entry for September 29, 1881 Continuing to the left, at the base of the exhibit case, is a picture of Queen Victoria and a letter of condolence that she wrote to Lucretia Garfield on September 25, 1881. On the left is a book titled, The Assassin. Assassin Charles Julius Gateau was a disappointed office seeker who had haunted the White House for months, demanding a diplomatic post in Paris. Mentally unbalanced, chronically unemployable, and always just one step ahead of the law, he became convinced that the president was to blame for his problems. Borrowing money, Gateau bought a 44 caliber British Bulldog revolver. 
He chose a fancy ivory-handled model for the job, thinking it would eventually look more imposing in a museum case. Immediately after shooting Garfield, Charles Gateau turned himself in to the nearest policeman. Fearing the lynch mob, he was anxious to reach the safety of the jailhouse. I did it, he said. I will go to jail for it. Arthur is president and I am a stalwart. The trial was a circus. Gateau continually interrupted the proceedings with bizarre outbursts. His plea was insanity, but after two months of a testimony, it took the jury only one hour to return a guilty verdict. As his final hour neared, Gateau became even more unhinged. He made plans for a dramatic exit, but settled for reading a poem he wrote for the occasion. As the executioner lowered the noose, he recited, in a high-pitched childish voice, his hymn. I am going to the Lordy. I am so glad. On the right side of the room is a placard. Garfield's life took on heroic proportions after his death. Biographers idealized his pure, upright career in the most maudlin terms. His path from poverty to the White House ascended the heights of service, of success, of greatness, of glory. Memorial items flooded the market. Monuments, statues, and commemorative souvenirs reflected a public need to honor the fallen leader. To the left of the placard are three plexiglass boxes containing a Garfield album with scenes from his life and death in black and white drawings, bisque porcelain bust of Garfield, pressed milk glass plate with Garfield's face, creamware pictures with Garfield, sheet music of Hot Reapers of Life's Harvest, Garfield's favorite hymn, Lucretia Garfield's black morning bonnet and veil, special printed train schedule for the funeral. Across the room is the entrance to the multi-purpose theater room of the visitor center. These double doors lead outside to the main Garfield house. Please return your audio description device to the visitor center desk before leaving this building. The theater is a square room with a peaked ceiling and round hanging lights. On the left and right, the walls are exposed planks, and at the far end, the wall is brick. In the middle of the room, rows of gray seats face a white screen. The film depicts James Garfield's life in Ohio, his education, Civil War duty, rise to the House of Representatives and Senate, election to the presidency, assassination, and death. The audio description for the film will play automatically through your headset. The film is shown upon request. On the right-hand wall are three windows and a back door with a white shade drawn. On the left side of the room, the door leads to the bookstore and information desk. Mm -hmm.